In a recently released survey on drug use in America, more than 20% of those age 12 or older said they used illicit drugs in the past year. And more than 9 million Americans said they misused opioids. What tools do substance use disorder clinicians have to treat addiction? Up next, we get the answer to that question and more with two experts on the front lines here at Bergen Newbridge Medical Center. Dr. Anthony Accurso, Medical Director of Addiction Medicine, and Michael Palello, Chief Clinical Officer of Substance Use Disorder Services. This is Wellness Waves, a podcast from Bergen Newbridge Medical Center. I'm Cheryl Martin. Doctor, let me begin with you. What impact did the pandemic have on substance use disorders? The pandemic had an impact on substance use disorders and opioid use disorder in particular. We know that national death rate from opioid use disorder and overdoses increased to over 100,000 for the first time in history during the pandemic. We can't say for sure what caused this, but possible ideas. The pandemic triggered a remarkable wave of loneliness and a panic among people, which may have served as triggers. Often people say that the opposite of addiction is connection. And when people were lying by themselves at staying at home during the state of emergency, a lot of people felt this sense of the end of the world coming. Notably, during the pandemic, there was often separation from prior stable treatment. So people weren't able necessarily to come into the drug treatment programs from which they were deriving strength previously. Many people were separated from in-person peer support. Not all of them had the digital know-how to join virtually. And coupled with that was the background of the increasing presence of fentanyl in the drug supply, which continues to make the street product more unpredictable and therefore more potentially fatal. And we now know that fentanyl is nearly ubiquitous in the opioid drug supply. I'd like to add to the pandemic. The fentanyl questions are more in Dr. Curso's area. But during the pandemic, almost immediately, programs just closed down. They shuttered. or Some of them went virtual, and some of them didn't have the time to go virtual. There was just a panic. Nobody knew what to do, and programs were closed down. And our clients had really nowhere to go in the middle of active addiction to get the treatment they were seeking. So fortunately here, and we were the only one in Bergen County, we did convince our senior administration to keep all of our addictions programs open, including our outpatient. So that was definitely important because people that are in early recovery really need to hear from other people that are going through things similar to what they're going through and they share what's worked for them, what some of the barriers are, and having that live in person, there's no virtual platform that can replace that. So what substance are you seeing patients struggle with the most? Definitely heroin in the last few years. And again, Dr. Curso can add to this, but we're seeing more heroin along with using cocaine. Definitely an increase in benzodiazepines like your Xanax. We can look at the decade from the 2000 to 2010 as sort of a decade of pain and pain treatment, during which you know, we now know that makers of opioid pain medications actively marketed them to patients who were experiencing chronic pain. But we can look now, perhaps, that we may be entering something that's more of a decade of anxiety, the current pandemic climate, the increasing impacts of social media, 
all of these things can contribute to just a generalized feeling of anxiousness, anxiety. And that is something for which patients will sometimes turn to benzodiazepines such as Xanax or Clonopin. And so we're seeing patients seeking treatments for those. But the background continues to be opioids in terms of medications that tend to lead patients down a difficult path. And we can't forget also that at least within the withdrawal management facility, we're still seeing a consistent background of patients who use alcohol, which shares some characteristics with both the benzodiazepines like Xanax as well as opioids like fentanyl or heroin. And that's a great point. The beginning of the pandemic, we almost immediately saw twice as many admissions for alcohol withdrawal management as we had prior to the pandemic. I'd like to take a moment to point out that the pandemic did actually have some silver lining in terms of our approaches to treatment. Of note, during the pandemic and during the state of emergency, federal guidelines on the provision of medications for opioid use disorder, including buprenorphine, brand name Suboxone or Subutex, as well as methadone. And specifically, for the first time, buprenorphine was permitted to be started via telehealth, via telemedicine. And this led to marked outreach to patients often in rural areas where there was no buprenorphine-wavered physician nearby. And this led to new delivery models, which as publications begin to come in describing these delivery models, they seem to show an uptick in the use of buprenorphine without any adverse effects from the telemedicine model. Similarly, from the perspective of methadone maintenance treatment, during the pandemic, there was a marked relaxation of the regulations on opioid treatment programs or narcotic treatment programs allowing them to give patients take-home doses much sooner and increasing the flexibility of the dosing schedules. And this increase in patient-centeredness was well tolerated by the patients and much appreciated. And what's going to be interesting to watch in both the buprenorphine and the methadone spaces is come May, when the DEA declares the public health emergency over, Are we going to see reversion back to the now two-decade-old methadone regulations, or are we going to see a continuation of the more patient-centered approaches, which could potentially allow methadone treatment for more patients? On the front with buprenorphine, we're going to have to see if telemedicine is going to continue to be permitted. And at the time of this podcast, The current plan from the DEA is to allow 30 days of buprenorphine via telemedicine, after which an in-person visit is going to be required. I mean, so Dr. Curso paints a perfect picture of the advantages of the virtual platform of telemedicine, and those advantages are very valid, but that does not replace the combination of, like Dr. Curso referred to, the opposite of addiction is connection. So there's a critical importance of patients being with each other, right? helping each other in a group setting along with the telemedicine options for medication-assisted treatment and the relaxation in some of the regulations that should continue. Have you seen a return to group activities now that the pandemic and its impact has slowed considerably? 
Well, what the good news is, we never saw that slow down. In fact, we saw it increase because nobody else was really open. And patients that really were motivated, yes, you have some patients that are maybe going to treatment because probation sent them or their job sent them. So the virtual platform was easy for them, so they liked that. But then you had a great deal of patients that really wanted, they were motivated to get better, and they wanted to be in group. And they came and they thanked us for remaining open. They had no other options. And since then, yes, we've seen an increase because, surprisingly, many of these other agencies that went virtual have remained virtual. And there is something with coming together physically in a group. There's a universality. There's a common bond that they have, a group of people with addictions helping one another get better, of course, with professional counselors and providers. But yes, being in the same room with each other, with that population, has proven to be the best setting. What do you see as the barriers to getting help that you see most often with your patients now? For years, the biggest challenge with buprenorphine treatment was simply getting in to see a provider who could prescribe it. We've seen marked progress on this during the pandemic in the following ways. Number one, the ability to use telemedicine to meet people where they are at, both literally and figuratively, at the moment at which they're ready to make behavior change, has been an extraordinary practice improvement. And then secondly, with the omnibus bill that passed in January of 2023, we have a change in the buprenorphine prescribing laws, the quote, Xing of the X waiver. So previous to this year, in order to prescribe buprenorphine, providers had to complete an eight-hour training and then present a notice of intent of their desire to prescribe buprenorphine. As of 2023, any doctor who prescribes any controlled substance is registered to do so can now prescribe buprenorphine. What we hope is that this will cause more and more providers to agree to prescribe it and increase access for patients in need of the medication. What will be interesting to see is whether the relaxation in the regulations will in fact change provider behavior. And I think we all need to watch that space. You've touched on this somewhat, but what do you find is the most successful treatment for those who seek care at the medical center? I think to begin with is the wider your continuum of care is, the better the prognosis for the patient. Because when they come in, we have something called a no wrong door policy, which is basically a patient comes in and they may think they need short-term rehab or intensive outpatient or withdrawal management. And when they come in, they see a professional, and they go through a very thorough, comprehensive assessment, and it may turn out that they need another level of care. So the two advantages we have here is that we provide the entire continuum of care as defined by the American Society of Addiction Medicine, and we don't have barriers to placement. We like to call it low barrier or no barrier. So if you come in and you thought you needed, let's say, withdrawal management, but as it turns out, you really could benefit from short-term rehab, like a 21-day rehab unit, we can very easily pivot and have that patient admitted to the program that they would benefit from. Of course, it's their choice. All programs are voluntary. So we explain to them, all right, so you don't need withdrawal management, say, because let's just use an example. You know, you're using 
amphetamines, and so you wouldn't need withdrawal management for that. But certainly we don't want to just say, all right, go home. You don't need to be detoxed from our withdrawal management. We refer to withdrawal management instead of detox, which Dr. Acurso can explain very well. But the point is, instead of saying, this isn't for you, and then having them go home, we can say, this doesn't really fit, but this does, and make sure there's no barriers for them to get from point A to point B. And offering several different levels of care within our system has been a big benefit for the patients. So it really allows us to meet patients where they're at. You know, for example, some patients may have nowhere to stay or where they have been staying may be so conducive to drug use that they just need to get away for a while. And for that, we offer residential rehabilitation services here, and we also have a good network of other residential facilities throughout the state to which we can refer patients. On the flip side, if somebody's housed in a supportive environment and simply needs medication to stay off of opioids and doesn't really have time to engage in other services, then that may be sufficient for that patient but not for the first patient. So we try to meet people at every stage of the treatment continuum. And we're uniquely positioned to do that because we have all of the levels of care under one roof. Another good point, I just want to point out the long-term rehab. So we talked about inpatient rehabilitation as part of our continuum here at Bergen-Newbridge. But we also are partners with Integrity House, which has longer-term rehabilitation. So really no barriers to somebody that may begin in short-term and want longer-term or may want longer-term to begin with. So the partnership with Integrity House has certainly proved to be a benefit. I'd like to speak more about the recommended treatments or the most effective treatments, which I believe was the question. So the treatments for different drug classes vary. And all listeners to this podcast have to understand that the medications that we have for opioid use disorder in particular are profoundly effective. And so those include buprenorphine as well as methadone, and in some cases, extended release naltrexone, brand name Vivitrol. Medications can also be used for alcohol use disorder. We have, again, naltrexone either by mouth or by injection, as well as acamprosate. And we have other medications that are sometimes used, five in total. So if patients haven't been offered these options, it's a big miss in terms of their recovery. What's interesting is not every patient wants to be on medication, and we all have to understand and appreciate that there are multiple roads to recovery. And so when people come into our facility, we do our best to ask patients, what are your goals? What is your interest in medication? What is your interest in counseling services? Are you interested in both? Do you participate in peer support, 12-step? These are things not everybody has to do, but anybody who is attempting recovery should probably try. I think of note, the one class of drugs for which we really do not have a medication are the stimulants. So cocaine or methylamphetamine, Adderall. The stimulants are drugs that really don't respond to any medical therapy. The one thing that seems to work is a treatment called contingency management, which is basically an offering of small rewards for not using. And we have a pilot program from grant funding that we received to launch this new but evidence-based approach to stimulant treatment. And we are in the early stages, and it seems to be working well. We see our treatment adherence certainly increase for the person with stimulant use disorder. Going back to one of Dr. Curso's points 
for example, 12-step programs. What we're seeing now more than ever, as everybody knows with our patient population, is all these young kids that are just unintentionally losing their lives because of the fentanyl that's in the heroin, or the way it is now, really just fentanyl that they're getting. Today is National Black Balloon Day. And so yesterday, in recognition of that, we had something called the Black Poster Project. And Dr. Accurso spoke to a very large audience on many of the topics we're speaking about today. But what we also had was people from the 12-step community that have recovered or are recovering from their addiction and they spoke about the hope. So on the one side of our exhibit, if you will, we had the over nearly 600, what's referred to as black posters. These are people that have really often very young kids, very vibrant looking, that have lost their lives, but their loved one will put this what's called black poster together to kind of celebrate the life. And it was just an overwhelming display. I mean, you can't imagine 600 posters of individual families putting pictures on them and writing about their life. The point being, when patients are done with treatment, okay, there needs to be a place for them to go. And like Dr. Ocurso said, there's no one place, but what we do see very frequently, and we see this because patients that are now in longer-term recovery come back to help patients that are new to recovery, and you see a very common theme. And that theme is they participated in a 12-step program. They got a sponsor. They went to meetings regularly. So that is certainly something we need to focus on. What do we do when they're done with treatment? Because we want to prevent anybody else from winding up on that black poster. What are some of the warning signs that loved ones should be looking for if they suspect substance use disorder, especially parents? You mentioned young children now on these drugs. I mean, a change of peers, immediately you'll see that. Unfortunately, missing items in the house. To support a habit, as they often refer, it costs money. We often call that what's called acquisitive crime. This is a tough one. The specifics of addiction are role failure, craving, use despite adverse consequences. And I think that that view of addiction is probably the best way for parents to look at this if they're expecting their children are using you know, a change of behavior, a change of friends, just as Michael pointed out. But I think, for instance, if we see their role as a student or their role on a team starting to slip, if there is a sense that the child is using, if they are unable to stop using despite adverse consequences, that's where you know immediately that that is addiction, that is not use. This is a tough call because people use drugs and they have been using drugs for a long time. And to just circle up children and say drugs are bad and then end the discussion is probably not going to be very effective. I think better is that if children know that they have a good connection with their parental figures, a trusting relationship, and one where the parents listen and listen without much judgment, then the quality of the information they get from their child will be better. And then it's a little easier to see Is this child experimenting in a one-off kind of way, or has this child lost control of their use? How young are you seeing children take, let's say, fentanyl or other drugs? I normally say you really don't see it until after high school, and for the longest time that was true. But when I refer to the people that had passed away in the Black Poster Project I refer to, we saw people that were 15, 17, that had died. It's infrequent, 
but we do see this younger population now using opioids, whereas a few years back, it was really after high school that you started to see that. You may, there may have been some prescription drug abuse while they were in high school, but when you started to see the using heroin with the fentanyl in it, that was typically around age 20 or 19. But to see these, my evidence being the young kids, 15, 16, 17, that have passed away from an opioid overdose certainly leads you to believe that they're using at a younger age now than they were in the past. We talked about the warning signs that loved ones should be looking for, but how can loved ones support the treatment and recovery process for those diagnosed with a substance use disorder? Education, I always say, is the critical first step. You've heard of enabling. So a lot of loved ones are enabling the behavior to continue, but they're not really at fault because they don't know they're acting out of love. And how are they enabling? They're enabling by believing, say, lies. You know, I need money for whatever the the child may say. And the reality is, if you really think about it, it doesn't make sense, but they're trying to help. Or, I mean, there's a lot of creativity, but you'll see the lying and dishonesty will certainly increase, or it may have just started. You may have a very honest child who starts to be dishonest. The addiction does create the serious, significant behavior change, and sometimes you just may be doing something that you think you're trying to help, when with education you would realize, no, I'm just enabling and not really helping. So enabling is a term that has a history that decades ago, family members were encouraged to confront the family members who were using to have an intervention to cut all ties, to push abstinence-only as a condition of housing. I'm not certain that that's always the best answer. I do think someone who is in chaotic drug use is motivated to get roughly the same amount of drug product as they used the day before. And if they are separated from a prescription for it or if they never had a prescription for it, they will often have to resort to buying it in a non-prescribed way. And as people build tolerance, it means they have to spend more and more money each day just to feel normal. So this is to say if they don't get a certain amount of money each day, they won't be able to function. And if viewed that way, the actions of someone in chaotic drug use, be it from borrowing money, from selling the jewelry in the house, while it's not what we would want to see somebody do, if you put yourself in the shoes of the user, it's a very logical course of action. So for the family that finds themselves in that situation, locking down the jewelry, changing the PIN numbers on the accounts is probably a good idea. But decrying that family member as worthless, as morally broken, as a bad human is probably going to make things worse because, again, the opposite of addiction is connection. And someone who uses drugs who's been cut off from their family or friends is going to feel even more isolated and likely use more. I have heard from families that feel regret for the amount of confrontation that they did after the overdose results in mortality. They say, I wish I could have done something differently. So I think it's a balance. Of note, the thing that family members can do to keep people with opioid use disorder alive is to encourage them to stay on 
medications for opioid use disorder, such as buprenorphine or methadone, if those medications are working for the patient. I think the thing that scares me the most as a prescribing provider is when I hear a patient say, I'm doing great on buprenorphine, but my family says, when are you going to get off? Because that moment when they come off is an incredibly dangerous few weeks or months. And the message, for example, from Families Anonymous or your 12-step family groups, Naranon, Al-Anon, Families Anonymous, is almost exactly what Dr. Accurso is saying. It is still love the person that is using, but the education is definitely important. Refer to it as a family disease for good reason. An entire family suffers when just one person in the family is abusing substances. So really, that education and their own involvement in 12-step fellowships that are focused on families that have loved ones that are using is certainly critical. What's the impact of co-occurring conditions on treatment? Co-occurring behavioral health disorders can interface with substance use disorders, and sometimes it's a little tricky to tease out, does somebody have a behavioral health disorder, something like anxiety or depression, which is improved by heroin and fentanyl? Or does somebody have primarily a substance use disorder, which has caused so much chaos in their life that it is triggering a secondary depression or anxiety? Strong programs will attempt to treat patients for both. It is a good moment to note that in our country, Services for behavioral health and services for substance use disorder are regulated in two different ways, and many programs will only be comfortable providing one of the treatments or the other of the treatments. And going forward, we would do well to reform our system to make it easier to create an integrated behavioral health and substance use disorder treatment program. Just in wrapping up, anything else either one of you would like to add about your program or just words of encouragement for those who have loved ones who are struggling with recovery or substance abuse? I will say that it is important. We have a patient population that comes in often at the lowest point in their addiction, in their lives, and their self-esteem at that point is pretty shot. And I think it's really, really important that the people that work with our patient population, believe in them, believe that they can get better and encourage them to get better and is genuine because patients know when you really care. And having said that, having a medical director, namely Dr. Accurso, that has a passion, a belief, thinks outside the box, does what he can to help this population, those patients respond like I've never seen before. And patients come back and it is very common They will say, I didn't really believe I could do this, but I saw that you believed in me. That's what we're trying to do. So I think the biggest thing I would emphasize, number one, is that addiction does not define people. And many of the people with substance use disorders are talented, wonderful, colorful people. And the substance use disorder defines one aspect of their life. And it will be a relapsing and remitting condition. It will come and it will go away and it will come back and it will go away. Much in the same way that diabetes or hypertension are chronic diseases that will occasionally manifest as being out of control and then with treatment and medications can be brought under control. 
I'll note, working with patients with addiction is amazingly rewarding. If you look at somebody when they come into withdrawal management, they look really ill. And three to seven days later, when they come out, they look markedly better. And I think an important aspect of the work that we are doing at Bergen Newbridge Medical Center is really trying to apply a principle that Michael taught me, which is the no wrong door principle. And we want to meet people wherever they're at and be a knowledgeable group of clinicians and physicians and mid-level providers who can literally Sherpa patients with addiction around the many treatment options that exist within our state of New Jersey. Well said. Dr. Anthony Accurso and Michael Palello, thanks so much for educating us on the latest treatment options, but also for offering hope to those seeking recovery. Thank you so much. To learn more, visit newbridgehealth.org and select the Substance Use Disorder tab. That's newbridgehealth.org. If you found this podcast helpful, please share it on your social channels. And be sure to check out the podcast library for other topics of interest to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Wellness Waves, a podcast from Bergen New Bridge Medical Center.